Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. We're in John 15, and I just want to say welcome. I see so many new faces. Where are my encounter peeps at? Hey, there we go. Welcome, guys. Glad you guys are here. This is College Life. This is our Sunday morning gathering for our college ministry, and we're glad you guys could join us. So this summer, we have been going through the I Am statements, like Destiny said, and this morning, we are finishing up the last one. So there's seven I Am statements in John, and Really what this shows is John was very intentional in how he orchestrated the book of John to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And these I Am statements are very important in proving that Jesus was God. And so essentially, as, as John goes through, he show, slowly, slowly reveals more and more about who Jesus is. And every time he says the phrase, I Am, is a callback to the Exodus name of God in which uh, God reveals himself to Moses. So whenever Jesus says it, uh, when you look at the actual Greek, it is, it is this affirmative that he is basically conflating himself with God, or he's, he is e- uh, calling himself equal with God. So that's essentially where we are. Uh, wanted to bring you all up to speed as we finish it out. So we're talking about the true vine today, and I just want to know if anyone is here with me, if Ever, you have just wanted to be like, man, I wish Jesus was here. I wish Jesus was here. You know, I've imagined what it would look like if I could actually go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, could, could I ask you a question? Could I, could I get some clarification? Or, you know, sometimes I've, I've wanted to come up to him and just talk about an issue that I was going through. Maybe I was disheartened about something. Maybe I just wanted to give him a hug, or maybe I just wanted to chat for a little bit. In my flesh, I imagine these things, thinking that if Jesus were here right next to me, things would be better, things would be easier. And I forget the words of, of Jesus just one chapter later from the passage that we're going to talk about today, in that it says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. And the reality is Jesus did leave. He did ascend to heaven, but it was better for him to do that. The disciples, just a chapter, just a chapter before this statement, had no idea what it looked like to follow their rabbi. How are you supposed to follow a rabbi or a teacher that isn't there? Jesus was going to be leaving them, and they needed some comfort in knowing, how are we to follow you? You've told us that the way to eternal life is only through you. So how are we supposed to follow you if you're not going to be there? Well, he's going to send us a helper, and he shows us in his final I am statement the way in which we follow Jesus even when he isn't here. Religion? Forget it. Law? That's not it either. You can't do it on your own. Good works, that's not going to be enough. So how do we follow Jesus when he is not physically here? Well, he uses this beautiful metaphor of a vine, and that the way we follow Jesus is by abiding. By abiding. And we're going to talk about that today. Because I'm convinced that many in the sphere of Christianity 
want to add to Christianity. They want to trust in Christ for their salvation, but prove to God that they were worthy to save or to show the world just how Christian they are or try their hardest to earn God's love. And we forget that moment that we, that we trusted in Christ for our salvation is the same disposition required for the entirety of the Christian life. That humility that when we realize that we were a sinner in need of a Savior, that same disposition toward God, toward Jesus, doesn't change as you grow. It's not, okay, thank you for saving me, Jesus. I got it now. It's not, Lord, thank you for that moment in my dire, desperate need, but I think I can figure it out on my own. It is a daily disposition of walking humbly with God. And today the Bible has something to teach us about this. In this private conversation that the Apostle John records, he shows how Jesus taught them to live a life of following him after he departed from them. And I think if we listen closely, we could learn from some of Jesus's last words. Some of Jesus's last words. Today we're going to see what it looks like to actually and truly abide in Jesus to find the abundant life that we so desperately seek. I'm not remiss to have conversations with students and show, and it shows up time and time again that there is something that they are craving in this life, something more. They feel empty. They feel like, I don't feel like this life is offering me what I thought it was supposed to. The reality is there is nothing outside of Christ that will satisfy you. There is nothing outside of a relationship with Christ that will give you what you need. See, as the true vine, Jesus is the source of that abundant life. And today we're going to see that, number one, the source of spiritual fruit is Jesus, and the spiritual fruit is abundant in Jesus. So let's read the passage again with that context, okay? That the setting around this passage, I just want to set the table. It is very somber. Jesus has already told the disciples that he would be leaving them. He had already predicted that Peter would deny them, implying that something major was going to be happening, that they were going to be discouraged about the events that are happening here. Okay, and so Jesus and the disciples, they gather in this upper room for this private moment of ministry. And just so you guys know how important this time is, John spent half of the book of John, this, this gospel of John, Half of it is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Half of the book is devoted to Jesus' life. And chapters 13 through 17 are focused on this one conversation between the disciples and, and Jesus. And so, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus is with his disciples. And, you know, obviously he had much to teach them. But I want to show you some, some textual context as well. In between this passage are two of the longest discourses on the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that Jesus wanted to preface what he was about to say with the reality of the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to conclude what he was about to say with the reality of the Holy Spirit. So that has something significant to say to us today. We're going to be talking about abiding in Jesus, but it is squished, it is sandwiched between two of the longest passages about the Holy Spirit from Jesus. Okay? Providing some serious context. Okay, so let's read it. In verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my and the Father, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So as the true vine, Jesus is the source of life abundant, but he's also the source of spiritual fruit. Now, if you guys are here with us today, we are right next to a gym. Hope you caught that. There's not just randomly kids screaming, okay? So that, that is just a part of being a college student at Wildwood. We are part of a multi-generational church, friends. <laughs> Okay, verse 1, it says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So here's the I am statement. Jesus saying, I am the true vine. So there are two things that happen in every I am statement. The first is that he is equating himself with God. This is a a phrase in which he is claiming his deity. But what do we know about Jesus? Jesus is the word. The word meaning the revelation of God. And so every time Jesus shares one of these I am statements. What he's doing is he is revealing more about God. And so what is God revealing about himself through Jesus in this statement? He says, I am the true vine. And this whole passage talks about how you can find abundant life and bear fruit. So the reality is God, through Jesus, is the only source of abundant life. He's the only source of abundant life. So we realize his identity, but we see his characteristic in this statement. It also mentions the Father as a vine dresser. Here we have this Trinitarian discourse that takes place. The vine dresser would be the person who would be monitoring, who would be keeping and taking care of the branches of the vine to ensure health and making sure that they are maximum, that they have maximum output in terms of their fruit. Okay, that's what the vine dresser did. Next, Jesus continues the metaphor, and here he includes the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus here describes two types of branches, those that don't bear fruit and those that do bear fruit. And there is a contrast in the way that this sentence is structured and showing that these two branches are different. They are different. The author is showing that these two branches are different. One that seemingly is connected to the vine, but is not abiding or participating in its life-giving properties. Okay? The other branch bears fruit, but the vine dresser still prunes it. Ouch. So going deep uh, into the metaphor is clear that this pruning is for a particular purpose. What is the purpose of the pruning. Why does God prune those that are bearing fruit? 
Why? What does it say there? That they what? Oh, go back. That, that what? They might bear more fruit. So there's a particular purpose in pruning. There's a particular purpose in pruning. Now, if you're like me, you're an indoorsy person. And that means you have no idea what a vine, a branch, or any of these things look like. So what we're going to do, and if we can make sure the volume is up, we're going to watch this video. It's a YouTube short of a guy telling us what pruning does and why it's significant. So it's at the top of the notes there. Now here's a fun lesson on grapevine pruning. Every bud at the beginning of the season sends out a primary shoot. And we can see the primary shoot coming down here. And right here is our little grape bunches that we're going to be harvesting in the fall. And then there's also a secondary shoot that comes out off the, the bunch. And the reason that the plant does that is to protect itself against frost. So if the frost comes, it kills this one here. There's a secondary one right here that it sends out. So we actually need to get rid of that one because we don't want the energy going into that right there. We want it going into these berries right here. Then there's also a chersey area. See right here? We also need to get rid of that guy right there. So that way all of the energy is going into the primary shoot, giving the nutrients to these berries. So when we harvest them, they are as delicious as they can be. Okay, so hopefully that kind of gives an idea of what pruning looks like. So essentially it is focusing and making sure that it bears more fruit. And so you can imagine if you were that plant and they just chopped off your limb, that would feel pretty painful. But the, produ the, pro the, the production of what actually happens is that it's good for them. It's good for them that they might bear more fruit because what's happening is the vine is being misdirected. It's going misdirected, okay? So you can see that even though pruning looks painful, it is for a good purpose. Pr by pruning, the vine dresser encourages more abiding in the true vine. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Let's take this metaphor home. Well, it means that even if we are bearing fruit, even if we are obeying God, it doesn't mean that our life will be full of blessings. It doesn't mean if we are obedient and following Jesus that our life will be perfect. It doesn't mean that we will find health, wealth, and happiness. What it means is that we might go through things that are difficult. It means that whenever we go through this life, we shouldn't expect it to be easy, even if we are following Jesus. My wife and I, Carly, she's back there, we were talking about this summer and how it has just been one of the most difficult summers of our lives. It has just been thing after thing, time after time, just difficulty after difficulty, and just things in our family that are happening. And in the moment, you know, it's really hard to see how those things can turn out. It's really hard to see how can this turn out good at all. And it's not to say that the tragedies, tragedies themselves are good, but it's to say that in God's sovereignty, he can bring good out of it. In God's sovereignty, he can bring a reason out of it. And so the reality for you and for me is that in a Christian worldview, we have a unique view of suffering and hardship. We have a unique view of how we respond to suffering and hardship. God does, doesn't look at it and say, eh, that's unfortunate. Eh, that's really sad. Hope you figure it out. But in his sovereignty, what he does is he brings meaning. He brings purpose. He brings growth. Carl and I won't be the same after this summer. But I believe, and I already see, the strengthening properties of the Holy Spirit in both of our lives, leading us to grow more in our faith in God, more in our dependence upon Him daily. 
that, oh yeah, we, we need to focus more on our relationship with God. Oh, we need to abide in Christ even more than we ever have before. Why? Because we must to get through it. We must. It is the only way to get through it. And the same is true for you. Just think, how do you respond to hard times? How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to difficult times? Do you view them only through the lens of self-pity, anger towards God, this feeling of being victimized? I didn't deserve this. The reality is that the response to hardship should be different for the Christian because we have confidence in God, that God is greater than our suffering, that God is more than our hardship. You might experience, as a college student, serious difficulty. That's a reality. You will probably face some very difficult times in college. You might experience a death in the family. You might experience a personal failure. You might experience heartbreak. You might experience broken friendships. How will you respond? As a Christian, there is more than just the circumstances, but there is hope that God can work in the midst of those circumstances and shape you and make you more into the image of his son. That's the beauty is that God can use suffering and hardship and bad things to prune us and perfect us and make us bear more fruit. And the disciples, imagine, they were listening. They were hearing this and they were hopeful that Jesus would work in the reality that he was about to leave. They were about to go through a seriously difficult, hard time. If you look at the life of the apostles, they were not easy lives. Yet, God used every circumstance to grow them, to prune them, to shape them, to do his will. So after reminding them uh, of what he told them when he washed his feet in John 13, he, he told them that they were already clean in verse 3. And he tells them, what to do in response to their cleanliness. So it says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. So this is essentially like a therefore. You are already clean. Therefore, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. He says the I am statement there again. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, it's important to rem remember right now the textual context. Jesus was leaving them. He told them so. How were they supposed to follow him if he was leaving? By abiding in him. How do you abide in someone who isn't there? How do you do it? Well, the way that John describes the Holy Spirit, guys, I love it. He's described as a helper an advocate. So imagine Jesus is leaving and he is sending a helper, an advocate. So essentially the way in which we abide in Christ is only possible through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. So how do we understand abiding? How do we do that? That's the common question I get. Kevin, how do I abide in a vine. We live in this Western context where everything is about what can we do? What can we do to achieve? What can we do to get this? What can we do to this? We say, how do we abide? The, question, the answer to that question might be a little counterintuitive to our Western thinking. I will read this quote from Vance Pittman. He says this, Vance Pittman, the word abide is designed to help you remember that following Jesus is first and foremost 
about your relationship with Him. It's about that wonderful, intimate fellowship between you and your Savior. And if you think that sounds kind of simple, you're right. It's supposed to be simple. The invitation to follow Jesus isn't an invitation to live for Jesus. It's an invitation to abide in Jesus and let Him, out of the overflow of out of that relationship, live His life in and through us in a way that produces fruit for His kingdom. Do you see that? By abiding in Christ, you are letting His spiritual goodness flow into you and then living it out in your life. It is about our relationship with Him. Are you close with Him? Are you anchored in Him? Are you, are you trusting in Him? Are you daily depending on Him? Is your disposition to Christ one that only happens on Sunday morning? Or is it one that happens every single moment of the day? The gospel is this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We did nothing to earn the salvation. It was trusting that who Christ is and what He did was enough for our salvation. Why is that not enough for our sanctification? Why is that not enough for our spiritual growth? The reality is, it is not some spiritual, your turn, my turn, where we trust in Christ for our justification, but don't live in Him for our spiritual growth. Jesus is emphatic. He is the vine. He's repeating His divinity and equality with God. In verse 6, He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There's a a debated verse in this passage, but the point is connected to this main idea that we can't produce genuine fruit apart from abiding in Christ. We cannot produce genuine fruit apart from abiding in Christ. I just want you to think about that for a moment. When you don't abide in Christ, you are not connected spiritually to the only one who can make us holy, the only one who can lead us to repentance, the only one who saves. So it makes sense why Jesus, in this conversation, talks about abiding, would mention what happens when you don't abide in Christ. You are worthless. You are thrown into the fire. The key in all of this is to answer this question. Are you participating Are you participating in the life of Christ? Are you walking with Him, loving Him, knowing Him, relying on Him, anchoring on Him? If not, friends, it is a certainty that you will not produce fruit. The bottom line today is that if you abide in Christ, you will bear much spiritual fruit. So let's take a moment and talk about it at our tables, and then we'll talk about the abundant spiritual fruit found in Jesus. Okay, so take the next 10 minutes and then we'll start back up. All right, as the true vine, Jesus is the source of abundant life. And we've seen that he is also the source of spiritual fruit. Now, that spiritual fruit is abundant. And that's what we're going to talk about next is the abundant fruit from Jesus. And we're going to talk about four types of spiritual fruit that are mentioned in this passage. Number one is answered prayer, two, obedience, three, joy, and four, sacrificial love. These are all spiritual fruits or the results of abiding in Christ. So when you hear spiritual fruits, what I mean by that is it is the result of abiding in Christ. These things are produced by 
connecting to the source, the spiritual source. All right, so the first spiritual fruit discussed by Jesus is answered prayer. And that's what he says in verses 7 through 8. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So a few things in here I want to talk about. But essentially is that what's unique about abiding in Christ is that when Christ lives in you, your thoughts change, your feelings change, and yes, what you pray for changes. He even helps us know that if his words abide in us, essentially that we are speaking Christ's words, if we are hearing his words and speaking them, that that is a condition to answer prayer. That's an evidence that he is abiding in us. Now, when we hear this, we ask, okay, how do we know if I'm praying in accordance with God's will? Have you ever wondered that? How do I know if I'm praying in accordance with God's will? Well, one great way to really test that is to test it according to scripture and even pray the scriptures. Did you know you can do that? You can pray the scriptures. You can use the language of scripture and help that change the way in which you pray. Often we might treat our prayer life as if God were a spiritual genie just giving us what we want. But this is really connected to what he said in the last I am statement, if you weren't here, the condition was essentially this idea that whatever you ask in my name, it will be done for you. So it's, a, it's praying in accordance with God's will. So we use God's word to change how we speak, but we also use God's word to change our heart and pray in accordance with God's will. That's kind of the condition that he's talking about. Now at our spring retreat, we talked about what it looked like to pray through the Psalms. And we recognized that God was our refuge and practiced actually praying the Psalms together, praying the scriptures together. And it's a beautiful thing because we struggle in prayer, don't we? We say the same things over and again. We're like, okay, I don't know what to say next. But what the scriptures do is they are so helpful for a variety of reasons. Excuse me. And I'll actually just read a quote from Donald Whitney, his book, Praying the Scriptures. He says it like this. If I try to pray for people or events without having the word, the Bible, in front of me guiding my prayers, then several negative things happen. One is that I tend to be very repetitive. I just pray the same things all the time. Another negative thing is that my mind tends to wander. Have you guys ever been there? I know I have. I know I have. But whenever we open God's word and we maybe pray through a psalm, our thoughts are guided. Our thoughts are guided. And it doesn't mean that you pray exactly, you don't try to interpret the scripture while you're praying. You just use the words of scripture to whatever the Holy Spirit brings to mind you pray for. Okay, and so that shapes our prayer by using the very words of God. And you'll find you pray differently if you do this, if you practice this. Because we must remember that prayer is not only just an event, but it is the way in which we connect to God. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. This is what it means to, to pray without ceasing, is to have a continued conversation with God. When you're driving and you're thinking about that meeting that you have, whenever you are walking up and you're talking to a friend and they share something, something really sad, whenever you're about to prepare for a test, whenever you are about to eat a meal, every single thing that you do can be surrounded and shrouded in prayer. It's not something that has to be an event where you get ready, get in the zone, and then pray. But it is a continued conversation with God, and it's through Christ that we can actually have that. 
So a disciple is someone that bears fruit. That's what we've talked about today. And that's what verse 8 does. What does it say? Let's go back to the verse 8. It says, By this my Father is glorified and answered prayer, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So that you prove to be my disciples. So what proves a disciple? It says here that it's his fruit. And what does this fruit do? It glories in God. You can tell the fruit of a disciple if it glorifies God or if it glorifies the person, right? Does their fruit glorify God or does it glorify themselves? Now, the second spiritual fruit is obedience. Obedience. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Okay, so God loves Jesus, and Jesus helps contextualize his love for us. It is just as the Father loves him. And in response to that love, what does he encourage the disciples to do? Look at it. What does it say? He encourages the disciples to abide not only in Jesus, but in his love. It is the common refrain, if you love me, then you will what? You guys know it? If you love me, then you will what? Keep my commands then you will keep my commands. It's not, if you want me to love me, you better obey. But obedience is the evidence of love. Obedience is the evidence of love. It shows, it proves that we actually believe what we say. You can say you love Jesus, but if you don't obey him, are you really loving him? You see that? Next, the third spiritual fruit that Jesus brings up is joy. And I love that that's off the heels of obedience. It says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So joy is also a mark of a disciple and it's a spiritual fruit from abiding in Christ. And when we abide in Christ, it looks like finding our joy in him, finding our joy in him. When we talk about freedom, When we talk about freedom in our culture, what we often think is that freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is the the opportunity to indulge whatever you desire and do whatever you want because you're free. But the way in which the Bible talks about freedom is a much more beautiful concept. And I hope that I can explain it so you guys can understand because it's so, so beautiful and glorious because it shows the power of God. And the freedom of the Christian is that when God saves you, when you trust in him for the forgiveness of sin, what happens is he is victorious over sin and death. Meaning that when we abide in him and we are united with him, we can participate in that victory. Meaning that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer enslaved or entrapped by the things that limit us, the things that trap us, the things that stifle us. We are no longer enslaved by those things. But in Christ, we are truly free because we ha- the, the, the lid is taken off. The cap is taken off. The ability to grow, we have the freedom to be who God designed us to be, to return back to the garden where sin is no longer present. In Christ, we have the ability to truly follow him and live in the freedom that is only in Jesus. That is the beauty of the Christian life in this life. It's not just some future hope. 
But it's the hope that I have hope today that whatever I'm struggling with, whatever I'm dealing with, whatever's enslaving me, I can find freedom in Christ. Do you see that? That is why there's joy in obedience. When we obey Christ, it is not this, I'm limiting what you can do. When we obey Christ, it is, I am finding freedom in the full expression of what humanity was designed to be. That, that is a beautiful thing. I hope that explains some of the, the, the confusion around this, this freedom that I think our culture has, has really perverted. Finally, Jesus closes this thought on discipleship with a section about how they are to treat one another. Verses 1 through 11 contains the word you, by my count, 17 times. In the next six verses, it contains it 15 times. So in half as many verses, almost twice as many use. So what does that mean? It means this section is all about their conduct to one another. It's all about how they treat one another. You'll find that in the Bible, there's so many one another passages. How we treat a brother or sister in Christ. Okay, I love this passage because the basis for love changes. I hope you can catch it with me. So verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another not as you love yourself, but as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you that, so that you will love one another. So that you will love one another. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it truly looks, it, it, it's what separates disciples of Christ from every other person. The great commandment that Jesus gives, he sums up the law in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second command is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But for the disciple, Jesus changes the standard. What the law said, Jesus elevates. Our love and our conduct toward one another, these disciples, their love for one another, our, our, the church, how we treat one another, our love should be marked by sacrifice. How did Jesus love his disciples? By laying his life down for them. And what does he say? Greater love has known than this. They lay down his life for his brother. The life of a disciple should be marked by sacrificial love to his brothers and sisters. Would you believe that the Christian life is not about you? It's not about your happiness. It's not about how satisfied you are. It's not about you getting exactly what you want. It's not about you getting what you don't want. It's about loving God with all that you are. And in response to his love for you, you can't help but love others as he has loved you. It's a reciprocation, basically giving back what Jesus has already given you to those around you. That's the mark of a disciple. That's the fruit that they should bear, that they should be sacrificially loving one another. This is what changed the first century. The church exploded not because they had the best theology. The church didn't explode because they were the coolest. They were persecuted, but they had history on the, their side that Jesus was resurrected, and they had a radical ethic toward one another. Their love 
was unheard of, unmatched. I hope the same would be true of us today. That we would be marked not by what we're against. We would be marked not by our fervor for theology, though theology matters and it shapes this, but that we would be marked by our love for one another. The best evangelistic tool is by how we, one of the best, is how we love one another. Our community of faith should be so attractive to a non-believer because of the way that we love one another. And that's a fact. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for the truth of your word and the fact that it is living and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword, and that we can look to it for guidance, that it is beneficial, it is useful for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete in every good work, not lacking anything. I pray that that would be true for us today, that whatever I've said today, Lord, that is not in line with your word, God, I pray that you would remove it from the minds of these students, God. I pray that what does affect them is what is the nature of your word and the fact that it is the force of your own speech that has the power to change lives. Nothing that I can say can change lives, but Lord, by your Holy Spirit, through your words, these students' lives can change. I pray that that would be true. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this group. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.